0: For our scripture reading this evening, turn to Revelation chapter 1, which we referenced a number of times this morning. Revelation chapter 1. The word revelation in the book of Revelation, and it gets its name from the very first verse, is a word that we're familiar with, the word apocalypse. The apocalypse is really the name of the book and verse 1 tells us this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. We often think of an apocalypse as some sort of cataclysm, cataclysmic event, but it really refers to a sudden Even unexpected, from a certain viewpoint, revelation. means to rip or take the cover off something to reveal something otherwise hidden. And that's what this book is all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, Who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever ever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, The beginning and the ending saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps, Two edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. We read that far in God's holy word, and we consider this evening the truth of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 17. Question and answer 45. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, The resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, both the Apostles' Creed and the treatment of that creed by the Heidelberg Catechism prove without a shadow of a doubt what we considered this morning, Namely, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an integral part of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself makes that clear, even in the passage of Scripture that he read, when several times he makes mention of that resurrection with regard to himself. He is not only the one who was dead, but the one who is alive. He is the one who now holds the keys of death and of hell. By the Lord's wonderful providence tonight, we are able on this Resurrection Sunday, we refer to as Easter, to consider the resurrection as found in the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that allows us to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the perspective of its benefit to us, that is, what is, again, the good news of the resurrection? The treatment of this subject by the Heidelberg Catechism is rather startling and shocking if one thinks about it. Go back and consider the rather lengthy treatment of the suffering of Jesus Christ that we have considered over the last few Lord's days. In what seems to be rather excruciating detail, the Catechism has explained all the elements that belong to the humiliation of Christ. And there is a remarkable turn in the resurrection. Even with regard to Christ for the resurrection marks the transition from Jesus' state of humiliation that we have been covering to the state of exaltation. But the catechism does not note that. The catechism does not really treat the resurrection at all with regard to what it was for Jesus, which is an amazing subject all by itself to can simply consider what the resurrection was for Jesus, for Himself. And that could be summarized simply as that He transisted from one state that of humiliation to another state that of exaltation. But equally remarkable in this rather brief treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism is that there is no explanation about the event itself. It simply assumes the event. Doesn't treat the different elements of the event. It makes no attempt to prove the event, which Scripture is at pains to do, and which we considered partly this morning. Also remarkable is that the catechism doesn't really even treat the nature of the resurrection again something that could be the subject of rather lengthy treatment all by itself. What was the nature of the resurrection? Was it a resurrection simply back to a former previous life for Jesus? Was it a resurrection in an entirely different body? And what was the nature of that body with which He was resurrected? Is Jesus still now in that body? All worthwhile subjects that are indeed taught in the Scripture, but omitted by the Heidelberg Catechism. What's striking is what the Catechism does treat. And if we think about it, it shouldn't be surprising. What does the Catechism treat? about the resurrection, only one thing, and that is, what is its benefit for you? What's the profit? What does it mean for you? In other words, the catechism shows what is so essential about the resurrection to the gospel. It even begs the question. It even makes us ask that question. What would the gospel be like without the resurrection? Would there be a gospel? And the answer to the catechism really is no, not at all. That would be impossible. Not when one looks at the profit or the benefit of the resurrection. Now that really shouldn't be surprising to us, as I said, not if we consider what the catechism is. The Catechism is that wonderful creed that we have which looks at all the great elements of God's plan of salvation and His work of salvation from the perspective of our comfort. And so we have that before us this evening. I ask you to consider with me that the benefits, we could even say the profit, of Christ's resurrection. And we'll notice in the first place, the part that the partakers in his righteousness, that's the first benefit that's mentioned in the Catechism here. We're going to make each of those the three points. and secondly, that we are raised to a new life, and, and thirdly, it is a guarantee of our resurrection. The prophet, or at least the first of three benefits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us is that, firstly, it makes us partakers of that righteousness which He had purchased for us by His death. In other words, it brings to us a new righteousness obtained by his victory over death. Now, right here is where it's worth a pause for us to consider how important that is to the gospel. And then consider that being the case, how important the event of the resurrection itself is. And that might help explain to us why the Scriptures are at pains to prove to us who live 2,000 years removed from that great event that indeed Christ has risen from the dead. Now the fact that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is made a part of the Apostles' Creed indicates that one can believe this grand event only by faith. There is no amount of earthly proof, physical proof, that would be sufficient for man, earthly, carnal man, to receive the resurrection of anyone, let alone one who is God's Son in our flesh. It can be believed only by faith, and yet faith also does rest on evidence. It's spiritual evidence, it's evidence that is found in Scripture, and There may be those without faith who would look at it and scoff and laugh and ridicule, but faith receives it. And part of that evidence is the many witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they are laid out one after another in the Holy Scriptures. Part of the reason for the numerous narratives of Jesus' resurrection and the inclusion of many people and even adding people upon people is to show that there were indeed those who without a shadow of a doubt knew that Jesus had risen from the dead And the Scriptures are even at pains to show us that it was not merely that they saw Jesus or touched Him. Thomas is an example of that. Thomas originally was an unbeliever. And we read too that really all the apostles were unbelievers. And certainly, their seeing Jesus who was dead and whom they knew without a shadow of a doubt had died now alive, played a part in their believing He was raised from the dead. Nevertheless, it was a matter of faith for them. Included in that faith was the reasons He was raised from the dead. Part of it was that they had to be brought to remembrance that this resurrection from the dead was a great, great miracle of God as evidenced by the fact that Jesus Himself had told them precisely that it was going to occur and when it was going to occur. Told even unbelievers that this would be the sign, the only sign He would give that He was the Messiah. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign. The sign of Jonah. I'm not going to review those proofs with you and go through those with you, except this evening I want to impress upon you that Scripture doing that shows you how important the event itself is. It's important for us to remember that the Christian faith is an historical faith. That is, it is a faith that believes actual real events have occurred in the history of time that believes these events have occurred according to God's plan and according to God's timetable. And that they must occur. God not simply planned them, but God caused them to occur. They must happen. The Christian faith and the believer's faith doesn't simply believe in a sort of abstract resurrection or believe in it as a possibility or as some cold doctrine, but as a real event that occurred on a particular day in history. And the Scriptures are at pains to demonstrate that. And we believe that Event. Now, the emphasis of the Catechism is upon the benefit, the benefit of that event, the benefit of Christ, of Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God as to his person, in human nature, suffering and dying and being buried then only to arise again from the dead. There is real benefit to the event. Notice the catechism here. It doesn't even put the question this way. What is the benefit of believing the resurrection? Now, One must believe the resurrection for there to be benefit. Make no mistake, unbelievers receive no benefit from the resurrection. What they have, as we saw this morning, is only fear and terror of this one who now lives. Notice the catechism, however, simply locates the benefit in the event itself. What doth the resurrection of Christ, prophet, us. And then each of the three points is linked directly to the event, to the resurrection itself. Now again, this shouldn't surprise us. Not when we consider that the catechism and the Scriptures do the same thing with the crucifixion of Jesus. Only there, it's a little easier, it seems, for us to recognize that. For some reason, we more easily recognize that there is real benefit and profit in the crucifixion of Jesus itself, in the shedding of His blood, in the breaking of His body, in the giving of His life voluntarily on the cross. But we don't seem to do that as we ought with the resurrection. We shouldn't do that. In fact, this is one reason why in the Scriptures one cannot separate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in fact, it's remarkable how often, as even in the passage that we read, the death and resurrection of Jesus, are tied together. Yes, it's true, there are passages and there are times and there are truths that are directly linked to one or the other. But the benefit of the resurrection is derived from the fact that it is a resurrection from death. And then not just any death, but the death of the cross. And here also, and right at this point, is when it's good for us to remember something we considered this morning that the Apostle Paul said, which is that if Christ be not risen, then is your faith vain. And then he tells us why it would be vain. Because ye would still be in your sins. That's another passage that links the death and the resurrection of Christ. Paul is talking there about the resurrection. If Christ be not risen, your faith is vain. Why? Because you would still be in your sins. Why? He suffered, did He not? He died, did He not? Yes, but a suffering and death, even if it's purported to be For sin, to pay sin without a resurrection has great, great meaning. What it means is you're still in your sins. And that is one of the points that's being brought out by this first benefit. By His resurrection, He has overcome death, that He might make us partakers of that righteousness which He hath purchased for us by His death. The Scriptures, in one remarkable passage, tell us that Jesus was raised for our justification. And the Scriptures also remind us that the resurrection of Jesus was also His own justification, which is why it's our justification. And that is the point being made here as the first benefit we might ask ourselves, what now is it referring to? Well, it's referring to something that we noted when we considered that all these points of the Apostles' Creed have to do with the state of humiliation and state of exaltation. And we said then that what explains that condition of humiliation and that condition of exaltation is His legal state before God. Jesus lived under the condition of humiliation, a condition of suffering and great misery, suffered even death because legally before God, He was guilty. And He was guilty not personally, because He personally had sinned, but He was guilty before God because He carried our sins. He had taken the responsibility of our sins upon His shoulders. And God therefore treated Him as a sinner and laid upon Christ that which sinners deserve. And what we saw made the cross so horrible, what made it even hellish agony, what made death so fearsome, is that God treated Him as the sinner. The one who bore all of our sins. The resurrection has the benefit of making us partakers of His righteousness, which He purchased for us, because the resurrection was the proof He had fully satisfied for all of our sins. In other words, he is exalted from the grave, exalted in his resurrection because there is no more sin. Every single one of the sins that he carried was paid for in full. If not, he would still be in the grave. And if you ask why that is, the answer is because God is a righteous God. God was not unrighteous when Jesus was visited with the wrath of God on the accursed tree. But God was righteous. God dealt with him as he deserved. He deserved that suffering. He deserved that hellish agonies. He deserved to die. He deserved to go into the grave. So also, He is raised because that is what He deserved. God would have been unrighteous if He had left His Son in the grave. And would have been unrighteous leaving His Son in the grave because that Son bore no more sin. The payment of sin, as Jesus Himself said on the cross, was finished. Now you understand somewhat the righteousness that He's talking about. On the cross, the catechism says, Jesus purchased righteousness for us. Christ purchased it because He earned it. He merited it. He earned and merited a righteousness that we could not. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of doing good. There is no amount of living that can obtain for us, whether by earning or otherwise, that we can get. That righteousness is unobtainable to us. There is nothing that we can give. There is nothing that we could present to God. Christ must do that. Christ must purchase it. And purchase it, He did. The price being His own precious blood. But it is through the resurrection now that we are able to be partakers of that righteousness. And it is only because of the resurrection that we can obtain it. There's something amazing here. Not only would it be true that if Jesus stayed in the grave, He would not have paid for sins. It would have been proof of that. So that the resurrection is proof that He indeed paid for those sins. But there's something about the resurrection that makes us partakers of it. Now, if you ask what that is, the catechism does not really explain too much about it. But it can be easily inferred when we consider what this is talking about. I said to you with the resurrection, the Scriptures use that word justification, and that's what it's referring to. The righteousness that is the righteousness of justification, that which God imputes to us. How does that happen? Well, even in the same way as Jesus purchased it or obtained it legally by meriting, so also we obtain it in a legal way. And how we obtain that is by being baptized into Christ. That's the truth of Romans 6. Romans 6 says that an amazing thing happens when we are given the gift of faith. When we are given the gift of faith, we, who indeed have been chosen and loved by God in eternity, are literally joined to Christ. And that legally, first of all, that's brought out by the biblical word adoption. He adopts us. He legally takes us as His own. If you ask yourself, why is it that Christ had sins upon Him on the cross? The answer is that He adopted us. We belong to Him. Even though we would be born and given the gift of faith much, much later. There's something very wonderful and mysterious there. So much so is that true that the Apostle says that when we are baptized, when we are given faith, when we are incorporated into Christ, we were buried with Him. That when He went into the tomb, we went into the tomb, even as our sins were upon Him. Amazing, amazing realities. But now that also means that when He came forth alive from the grave, the righteousness that He obtained and He earned becomes ours. And becomes ours not for anything that we do. Oh, we obtain it by faith. We receive it by faith. But it simply becomes ours because we belong to Christ whose righteousness it is. And because of that, God views us as righteous. If you want to consider what this benefit means for you and me, then simply consider how God views His Son, Jesus Christ. Look again at the remarkable transition from humiliation to exaltation. From this lowly, humble, beaten man who goes into the grave to the glorious, glorious person that comes forth out of the grave soon to be raised to heavenly glory. God views us in the same way. As righteous. As justified. And the great benefit of the resurrection is that when a child of God looks at himself, which he ought to, by faith, in all he sees is sin. Sin, sin, and more sin. And even when he looks at his best works, say, loving this wonderful Savior, he finds yet more sin. Then the child of God may be comforted that nevertheless he is indeed righteous and the God of our Lord Jesus Christ sees him that way. And the proof is Jesus was raised from the dead. There's a second benefit. And this one now looks at our salvation from a slightly different perspective. It adds to it. There's an amazing thing found here in the Heidelberg Catechism about our salvation. We we see that there's many facets to it. Our salvation is not merely a legal salvation. It does not merely pertain to how God sees us and deals with us. It's not merely about God imputing to us the righteousness of Christ as our own, but it's a salvation that includes being raised up to a new life and concerns power, real power. Whereas the first benefit refers to what we often call, in theological terms, justification, the second is referring to what we often call sanctification. Anyone who minimizes the real power to live a new and godly life in the child of God, anyone who says it's not possible, Anyone who rejects it as a necessity, perhaps because they feel that it somehow impinges on the gospel of grace, knows nothing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And limits the benefit of that resurrection to one point. The catechism says that another benefit of the resurrection is is that we are by His power raised up to a new life. Now, to understand what the catechism is getting at, we have to go back to how we are described by the Apostle Paul legally. That we were in the grave with Christ and that therefore we also came forth out of the grave. Now what's amazing there is that the Scriptures and the Catechism here look at that as an actual reality. Maybe you've never thought of that before. You see, there's something mysterious that happens. And that is when God justifies us, when God imputes to us or makes us partakers of the righteousness of Christ, there is a resurrection that also occurs. It actually must occur even as Jesus must be raised from the dead because He is now righteous, having paid for our sins, so also the child of God who is declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ must be raised. And not now raised sometime in the future, perhaps when Christ returns, which is how perhaps we look at it, but raised Immediately. Immediately. The child of God, you and I, beloved, who have faith, have been raised from the dead. That's why the Scriptures link regeneration with resurrection. I don't have time this evening, but when you get time, hopefully soon, you can go to the canons and read there the great, And grand description of regeneration. We know it to be a rebirth, a rebirth, being born again. But the scriptures also liken it to being raised from the dead. There is a time in the life of each child of God where he once was dead and then is raised from the dead and raised from the dead so that just like Christ, just like Christ who was raised from the dead, they actually live a new life. A different life. And here, it's worth pointing out that it is an entirely different kind of life even as it was a different kind of life for Christ. Yes. Christ arose in the same body that went into the grave. The same body that was crucified on the cross. He wasn't given a new body. But that body was qualitatively different. It was entirely different from its nature's point of view. It was a spiritual and heavenly body. It was given a different kind of of life, And that is the wonder of a child of God. And it really shouldn't be a wonder if we consider that again, it's by His power. Look at that power. It is an amazing thing that with regard to Christ, the Scriptures refer to Him being raised. That emphasizes that Christ was really dead so dead that God must raise him. That emphasizes, too, saying God raised him, that it was done with the approval of God of his work. But the Scriptures also make clear that Christ raised himself, that he came forth with a power that he possessed and was given to him. And now, it is that same power that raises us to a new life. This is salvation from the dominion and power of sin. Remember, sin is a power. A corrosive, pervasive power. And that power of sin is related to the power of death. Conquer one, one conquers The other. And therefore, the child of God who is raised to a new life is given real power over sin. The idea of a new life is a new life such that one never had before. There's a life previous and a life after a life that did not exist. and did not exist because it did not exist in that form, in that nature. Formerly, our life was merely and purely and only carnal, fleshly. But now there is also a new spiritual life, and it's a resurrection life. In fact, we may see, that the resurrection of the body in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is not first or a new life but simply a continuation and indeed the perfection of a life that began long ago in us. And that's why Christ could even use such powerful language saying that though we be dead, yet shall we live, and even that we shall never die. That's true. That's real. In a very real sense, the child of God, who has been raised from the dead already now, so that he can sit in church and love God and live according to His Word, albeit sinfully according to His flesh, never dies. Never dies. Oh, his flesh will die. He will die in his body, but he simply continues to live a life that he already had. And that's why you have the third benefit also, that the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Notice again how the two are linked. This is an amazing benefit also, beloved, because there is something about death and the grave that teaches us that our salvation and our deliverance is not of ourselves. Anyone who imagines that even though one of the benefits of the resurrection of Christ is that we are empowered to live a new life, that's true. The second benefit means that you actually live a new life. You do. You live that life. You love God. You serve Him. You desire Him. You believe in Him. Nevertheless, you are not the source of the power of that. You are the subject of that, but not the power of that. And if you doubt that, then there's the grave. One day, you and I, will be placed in a casket deep within the ground and covered up with dirt, and you will be dead. And the thought will occur to you now or then, how am I getting out of here? How are you, who are dead, going to climb out of that casket and through that dirt? And it creates doubts. It creates fear. Because you know as well as I do, that there is no man in heaven or earth who has done that, not by their own power, not by their own strength, yet climb out of the earth, they will. Now how will that be done? Well, the same way that we are empowered to live a new godly life now. There will be the command of the mighty Christ over our grave saying, Rise up and walk and the child of God will come forth from the grave." Now those aren't just words, but they come with a pledge. They come with a guarantee. And the Catechism says that pledge and guarantee is Christ Himself. You may ask yourself, why is that? And the answer really is, look at the first two benefits. Number one, because you who are in the grave even as Christ was in the grave, are given the same righteousness, the same righteousness that He purchased, and for which reason He came out of the grave. That in the first place. In the second place, the same One who is in the grave is also the same One who is given a new godly life that even as they are in the grave is living unto God in heaven. And that life, as we know from the resurrection of Christ, is an immortal, incorruptible life. And that's why it's a pledge of our blessed resurrection. He lives, beloved. He who was once dead lives. And because he lives, we live. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we thank Thee for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the blessed benefit that it brings to us through faith. Give us faith, O Lord, that trusts in our Lord Jesus, who so wonderfully purchased for us righteousness, who came forth from the grave, by whose power we are raised up to a new life, and so that we may know with absolute certainty we also shall be raised in our bodies from the grave. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.